Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am going to cover in this audio, Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 15. We start with an introduction. Most of this introduction comes from notes in an NIV study Bible that I once owned. The author of the book of Romans is Paul. This is obvious. Romans 1.1, for example, says that Paul wrote the, the book. There was no voice from the early church that ever raised a voice against Paul's authorship. The historical references that Paul mentions in the letter agree with known events in Paul's life, and the doctrinal content is similar with other of Paul's letters. So not even the most nefarious liberal can deny that Paul wrote this book. Where did he write it from? He wrote it from Corinth. Why is that? Well, several Corinthians are mentioned. For example, Phoebe of Sincrea in Romans 16.1, and Sincrea was the port city of Corinth, about six miles away from Corinth. Gaius is mentioned in Romans 16.23. He was probably a Corinthians. We, a Corinthian. We read in 1 Corinthians 1.14, I thank God that I baptized none of you but Crispus and Gaius. And Erastus is mentioned in Romans 16.23, and he may have been a Corinthian because we read in 2 Timothy 4.20, Erastus has remained at Corinth. And it's a slight logical jump to say if he remained at Corinth, that means he probably was from Corinth. The approximate dates of the book of Romans, it was probably written in the early spring of 57 AD, and I say approximate because people disagree over datings of these Gospels. It's enough to drive you crazy. So we're just going to use approximate dates. I've used a good outline that is reasonable as any other outline. Paul was on his third missionary journey. We do know that. He was ready to return to Jerusalem with offerings for the poor saints there. And he was in Corinth getting ready to go back. And then he wrote the book of Romans from Corinth. Earlier on that third missionary journey, he had written 1 Corinthians from Ephesus. He went from Ephesus, crossed over the Hellespont, went into Macedonia. Then he wrote 2 Corinthians. And then when he got down to Corinth, as he went down from south from Macedonia, got to Corinth, then he wrote the book of Romans. Who were the recipients in Rome? They were, the majority of them were Gentiles. There was a substantial minority that were Jewish. The major themes of the book, this is from my good friend Steve Ackerson, who loves mnemonic devices and turns of coinage of terms and turns of phrases and such. He says the major themes are sin, salvation, sanctification, sovereignty, and service. There's a good five-point sermon. Instead of a three-point sermon, it alliterates. Another major theme is how to deal with the relationship between Jew and Gentile, as we see as we get into the book. This is not controversial. It's very obvious. This is just an overview. The occasion for writing the book, Paul had just finished his work in the eastern Mediterranean. He had finished his work at Ephesus. Remember the lecture, two years in Ephesus at the lecture hall of Corinth, uh, uh, in uh, Tyrannus' lecture hall in Ephesus. And he had gotten to Corinth, and he wanted to go back to Rome because he, is, he had been writing and urging people to churches to, to put money into that poor relief fund, and he wanted to take that money. He wanted to go back to Rome. So he couldn't go to Rome. He wanted to go to Rome, but he couldn't because he had to take the poor collection back to Jerusalem. So he wrote a letter to the Romans instead of a personal visit. He wanted to prepare them for his intended mission to Spain, which we'll read about in Romans 15, 23 through 24. He wanted to visit the Romans on the way to Spain. Now, what are some of the special characteristics of the book of, Roman? it's the, of Romans? It's the most systematic of Paul's letters. It reads like a theological treatise rather than a letter. It emphasizes Christian doctrine. It has a widespread use of Old Testament quotations. Paul often does this in other letters, but he especially does it in Romans. 
Paul shows a deep concern for Israel in the letter, and he says very little about problems in the Roman church, and that's probably because he was not connected to the church. He didn't start this church, and he had never visited there before, so he didn't mention their problems. Now, what are some of the legacy? What can we say about the legacy of the book of Romans? Here's a quotation from Samuel Taylor Coleridge, the famous British poet. Quote, the most profound book in existence. And that's saying something. Frederick Godet, the famous biblical commentator, said the book of Romans is, quote, the cathedral of the Christian life. Martin Luther said it can never be read or pondered too much, and the more it is dealt with, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. Why is Romans important for us today? It's a primary source document for what Christianity is supposed to look like. I say that because there's so much Christianity in America that is so far from what Christianity is supposed to look like that it's quite frankly embarrassing. It answers a lot of basic questions. What do Christians believe about sin? What do Christians believe about salvation? What do Christians believe about Jesus? What kind of lives do Christians live? All right, so you can see this is a fundamental book. We start in verse 1 of Romans 1. Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle and singled out for God's good news. Now, in ancient times, writers put their names at the beginning of letters. As the NIV Study Bible points out, and Paul did that. He starts out the book with his name, Paul. We put, him, we put ours at the end. Sincerely, yours truly, Dan. Now, this greeting, which is going to take up quite a few verses, is the longest of all of Paul's greetings in his letters. Why? Well, probably because Paul didn't start the church at Rome and needed to introduce himself a little bit better. And he also never visited the church even. He had met some believers from Rome, as we see in the in the uh, closing names mentioned in Romans 16. He had visited some people from the church of Rome, but he'd never been there personally and hadn't started the church. So he spends a lot of time introducing himself. He calls himself a slave of Jesus Christ. Now, this is an English translation, uh, an interesting translation problem. The Greek for that word, I think it's doulos, had two meanings. One is a slave. A slave is one who is completely who completely belongs to his master and has no freedom to leave. The other translation of the Greek word is servant, which means to someone who willingly chooses to serve his master, but if he wants to quit, he can't quit. It's a big difference, really. But And it's not clear which translation should be used. Both meanings fit Paul, actually, because he completely belonged to his master and had no freedom to leave. That means he was a slave. He was a servant who willingly chose to serve his master, so... Anyway, the Home of Christian Study Bible, the translation I'm using, calls Paul a slave, which is, it has much more of an impact than servant, in my humble opinion. Now, some translations prefer to translate it. The word is servant, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. That would be, for example, the ESV, the KJV, the Mace New Testament, the Wesley Translation, and Young's Literal Translations. Other translations prefer the translation slave, like the one I'm using. Home of Christian Study Bible, for example, the Montgomery translation of, New, of the New Testament, the New American Bible says slave. And some translations split the difference and translate it as a bond servant. Bond is slave and servant is servant. You just put both of the terms together so we don't know what the heck <laughs> the Greek is supposed to be referring to. I mean, what is a bond servant? I don't know. But anyway, the NASB does that in the Weymouth translation. Now, the ESV study Bible and a note says there's a possible reason for translating the word servant is because if you translate it slave as the Holman Christian study Bible does we might envision the wrong thing if we see slave at least American audiences because we think of slavery in the 
in the country and in the American South in the early 1800s, and those slaves were not highly educated as Roman slaves were. Roman slaves were generally permitted to work for pay to earn their freedom. That wasn't the case of slavery in America. And Roman slaves commonly were entrusted with immense amounts of money and responsibility. What did they call it? The peculium, I think it was. Anyway, they had a lot of they they could they could handle a lot of money by their way out of slavery. So that's not the we don't think that usually American audiences don't when we think of the term slave. And so slave might be a little misleading because Paul was he had a lot of responsibility being a slave of Jesus Christ. All right, but anyway, he's called as an apostle. Now, what does apostle mean? Apostle is a sent one, a delegate, a messenger. One sent forth from, one sent forth with orders. One made ready for a mission and then sent off. The Latin equivalent is missionary. I just love how people say, oh, I believe in missionaries. I believe in missionaries. Do you believe in apostles? No, I don't believe in apostles. I, that, they died out in the first century. Folks, a missionary is an apostle. It's just a Latin word. Apostle's the Greek word. I love to use the word apostle because I like to see people get their hackles raised. And because I have a particular ongoing grudge against cessationists who act like the Bible is only for the past and huge portions of it are not available for the present. Apostles do exist today because they're missionaries. Now, why was the Greek word transliterated? The Greek word is apostolos. Why was it transliterated and not translated into a different English word? Perhaps because it has two meanings. One is an apostle is one who has authority to write scripture. Those would be the original twelve. And even then, that's fuzzy because Paul was not one of the original 12, and all the original 12 didn't write scripture. Well, anyway, despite that fuzziness, we can call those capital A apostles, those who, let's just say those who were with Jesus at the beginning, and then one, the little A apostles are all these apostles who were sent out to establish churches. They didn't have authority to write scripture, but they established churches. Now, again, that's a little fuzzy, too, because Paul was a little A apostle. He went out to establish churches. So was Luke. They wrote scripture. But then you got people like Titus who did not write scripture. So as you can see, you got to be careful with that word apostle. you got to be very clear about what you mean when you use it. Now Paul says in this verse here in Romans 1 that he had been singled out for God's good news, for God's gospel. Good news means gospel. He had been singled out. Singled out by whom? Singled out by God. Here's some other scriptures that show this act of God singling out someone. Of course, the Another word for that is choice or election, but of course that has theological connotations that gets certain Armenians hot and bothered. But Paul was singled out. He was chosen for what he was doing. John fifteen sixteen. you did not choose me, Jesus says, but I chose you. I appointed you that you should go out and produce fruit and that your fruit should remain so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. So Jesus talks to his He's talking to his original disciples, his original apostles. He says, I appointed you that you should go out. Appointed is just a kind of a, uh, kind of a weak word for I ordained you or I chose you. I predestined you. <laughs> Acts 9.15. This is God talking to Ananias who was supposed to go talk to Paul upon Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus. But the Lord said to him, said to Ananias, go for this man, Paul, is my chosen instrument. He's chosen. He was chosen. God chose that murderer, that persecutor. God chose him, not because of Paul's works, because his works were pretty awful, pretty, pretty terrible. He was killing Christians. He was murdering them. He was taking them into prison judicially murdered them, I'll put it that way. 
And God chose him. So it's obviously not on account of God of Paul's works. Why was he chosen? In Acts 9.15, God continues to speak to Ananias. He was chosen to take my name to Gentiles, kings, and the Israelites, both Gentiles and the Jews, and big shots, kings. Acts 13.2, this is the, I think it was 7, or was it 5? I can't remember the, the prophets and teachers at the church of Antioch. In Acts 13, before the first journey, as they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work I have called them, God singled out Paul and Barnabas. He set them apart, and he called them and says, Come on, guys, do the work. Galatians 1, 15 through 16, But when God, this is Paul speaking to the Galatians, But when God, who from my birth set me apart, when from his birth, God had his eye on Paul from the very beginning, despite the fact Paul voluntarily and freely of his free will chose to persecute Christians until his adulthood. But nonetheless, God from... Paul's birth set him apart, called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I could preach him among the Gentiles. So this, and of course, this idea of being singled out for the good news. I mentioned several verses here about being singled out to preach to the Gentiles. That's as big as we'll see later. Acts 9.15, Ananias, God says, Ananias, this man is going to take my name to the Gentiles. Galatians 1.15, God has set me apart and called me by my grace to that I might preach him among the Gentiles. We go to verse 2 to preach the God. Well, let's see. I got, I'm in the middle of a verse here. So the end of verse 1 says, I'm singled out for God's good news. Verse 2, which he promised long ago through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So the gospel was promised long ago through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. That's talking about the Holy Hebrew Scriptures, of course. The New Testament Scriptures hadn't really been compiled yet. So you notice that the prophets in the, in the Hebrew scriptures had promised the gospel. The gospel is in the Old Testament. The gospel was promised through the Old Testament prophets. The Old Testament prophets were not prophesying about some chiliastic millennial kingdom that comes after the second coming. I'm sorry to offend all you pre-mill guys out there, but that ain't what the prophets were talking about. They were talking about Jesus. And here we have this verse right here. The good news was promised long ago through his prophets and the Holy Spirit. It, that's where all the Old Testament prophecies point to. The New Testament. The kingdom of God preached through Jesus Christ, the Messiah, not the millennium. Unless you take the millennium to be the church age, of course, which is what I do. But I'm, not, I'm talking about not a pre-mill millennium, let's put it that way. Excuse me for that theological discursion, excursion, but I felt it was necessary. Now, notice Paul considered the Old Testament Hebrew Scriptures holy. He says in the Holy Scriptures, he had a very high view of the Old Testament sacred writings. He considered them sacred. He was not a liberal who was looking for errors in the Bible every chance he could turn around. He had a proper view of Scriptures. It would do us good if we also had the same proper Scriptures. We would be free from so much garbage. We go to verse 3, Romans 1. Again, in the middle of the sentence, so I need to back up in verse 2. He promised long ago through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, verse 3, concerning his son. So the gospel, which was promised before in the Old Testament, was in verse 3, concerning his son. The gospel was concerning his son. The good news was concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was the descendant of David according to the flesh. Now, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, of course, was God, but he was also human because he was a descendant of David according to the flesh. That means according to his human nature, he was a descendant of David. He was prophesied 
in the Old Testament, those same Old Testament scriptures which, which spoke of the good news, which spoke of the Messiah in the New Testament. For an example of this is the famous passage in Second Samuel seven twelve through 16, in which David prophesied to King David that his descendant, according to the flesh, would be the Messiah, would be Jesus Christ our Lord, as Paul says in Romans 1, 3. Second Samuel seven twelve through 16, when your time comes, Nathan speaking to David, when your David time comes and you, David, rest with your fathers, I will raise up, I, God, will raise up for you after you, your descendant, that's Jesus, who will come from your body, in other words, from the fleshly line of David, father, son, grandson, great-great-grandson, and I, God, will establish his, Jesus' kingdom. He will build a house for my name, that's the church, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. In other words, Jesus is going to rule as a king in his kingdom, which is the church, as well as people who've died and gone on to heaven and so forth. Now, verse 14 doesn't apply to Jesus because it says, I will be a father to him and he will be a son. Well, that does apply to Jesus. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. This part does not. When he does wrong, I will discipline him with a human rod and with blows from others. Of course, Jesus never did any wrong because he was perfect. So this is talking about the other descendants of David. Verse 15, going back to Jesus, but my faithful love will never leave him as I removed it from Saul. I removed him from your way. Your house, David, and your kingdom, David, will endure before me forever. That's because the church is going to last forever, because once we're children of God, we're his forever. We're sealed, signed, sealed, and delivered to God, and ain't nothing going to take us out of his hand. Your house and kingdom will endure before me forever, and your throne will be established forever. Here's another verse talking about the the descendant of David according to the flesh being Jesus the Messiah. Psalm 132, verse 11, the Lord swore an oath to David. That's the Lord God, Yahweh, has sworn oath to David, a promise he will not abandon. I will set one of your descendants on your throne. That's the psalm referring back to this verse I just quoted in 2 Samuel 7. Jeremiah 23, 5, the days are coming, this is the Lord's declaration, when I will raise up a righteous branch of David, a branch that shoots out from the root of Jesse, the stump. <laughs> David's kingdom might be cut off physically, which it was. 586 B.C., the Babylonians came in, but there was a righteous branch that sprung out from that cut-down tree of Israel, and that righteous branch was Jesus. He will reign wisely, Jeremiah continues in verse 5, chapter 23. He will reign wisely as king and administer justice and righteousness in the land. And, and there's a lot of other, of course, Old Testament verses in the Hebrew Scriptures about the good news. Remember, this is what I'm trying to point out here. Romans, in Romans 1, 2, Paul says that the good news was promised long ago through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And so Paul then says, hey, what was the good news that was promised before in the Holy Scriptures? As in verse 2, verse 3, this is the good news. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was the descendant of David according to the flesh. So the gospel was in the Old Testament. Of course, you've got the other, like the Emmanuel passage in Suffering in Isaiah 9, you got the suffering servant passage in Isaiah 53. You've got the right of the virgin shall conceive in Isaiah 7, 14. How about Micah's prophecy that the Messiah will be in born in Bethlehem? And there's others, too. There's lots of them. And so Paul just mentions that briefly as he goes through. We go to verse 4 in Romans 1. And who? Well, let's see. That refers to Jesus Christ, our Lord, in verse 3. Verse 4, and who has been declared to be the powerful Son of God by the resurrection from the dead according to the Spirit of Holiness? I'm going to take there the Spirit of Holiness as the Holy Spirit. Just a different way of saying it. 
Jesus was declared to be the powerful Son of God? How? Because he was resurrected from the dead. Now, John Gill mentioned some other options. It could be he was declared to be the powerful Son of God because of the resurrection of the dead at the end of time. I don't see how that's possible because that's the future. That's not the past. How is that going to testify to Jesus being the Son of God at this pro- at this present time? The word declared is in the past tense here. John Gill also has another option is that Jesus was declared to be the powerful Son of God by the resurrection of the dead of people like Lazarus and the son of the widow of Nain. People saw people getting resurrected from the dead, and they say, Ooh, that's a powerful testimony. That declares that Jesus is the powerful Son of God because he's resurrecting people from the dead. No, I don't think so. I think it's when he raised himself from the dead, or as God raised him from the dead. As the Scripture says, both had a, both Jesus and God raised Jesus from the dead. That is what the testimony is. That's how he was declared to be to the whole world. Anybody who looks at this, the resurrection of the dead, anybody that can rise from the dead, folks, has conquered death, and that's somebody whose words we ought to give attention to. Now, notice that Jesus is declared to be the powerful Son of God by the resurrection. He is not made to be the powerful Son of God. Now, of course, if you say made to be the Son of God, it sounds an awful lot like Jehovah's Witnesses, the Jehovah's Witness. Heresy. It sounds a lot like Arianism. There was a time when Jesus was created. There was a time when Jesus was not, and then he was. No. Now, the King James, unfortunately, in verse 3, the previous verse, has a translation that sounds sort of Arian, sounds sort of Jehovah's Witness. Concerning his son, Christ, Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. Well, that does, when you talk about made, Jesus is made, that does sound like Arianism. However, even if the King James translations translated it accurately or the best, which I don't think. But even if that's true, notice that he was made to be the seed of David according to the flesh. That's referring to Jesus's human nature because there was a time when Jesus's human nature was not. And then when his divine nature was joined to human nature in Mary's womb, then his human nature came into being. So you could say his human nature was created, but you can't say his divine nature was because then you are a heretic in violation of the Nicene Creed and the Council of Nicaea in Constantinople. Now, he was declared, what, to be the powerful Son of God? That phrase, Son of God, was a Messianic title to the Jews. If you call somebody the Son of God, that meant you were you were the Messiah. Now, the fact that he is called the Son of God does not give aid and comfort to any Jehovah's Witness or Arians. I hate to be picking on the JWs here, but this is so much Trinitarian stuff here in the first part of the book of Romans. The Son of God, that does not mean that Jesus is any less God because he's called a son. There's no inferiority implied. It's just like a human son is not any less human than his father. I have a son, Tyler. He's the son of Dan, but that doesn't mean he's less human than me. And because Jesus is the Son of God, it does not mean he's less divine than God is. He shares God's genes, if I can speak metaphorically. Jesus shares the divinity of Christ. A son, a human son shares the genes of his father. The divine son shares the, the spiritual genes of his father. He shares the divinity of Christ. Let's look at some scriptures that show this. This is a good scriptures to give to your JW friends. Romans 9, 5, the ancestors of theirs, the Jews, and from them, the Jews, by physical descent came the Messiah, who is God, the Messiah, who is God overall, praised forever. So Paul in Romans 9 says that Jesus is God. Titus 2.13, Paul writes to Titus, While we wait for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is called God as well as Savior. 
Colossians 2.9, for the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ. The entire fullness of God's nature, that means Jesus had God's nature. So he was divine, just like he was God, just like God the Father was God. I mean, you know, it amazes me how people say they can believe in the Bible and not be Trinitarian, like these Jesus-only Pentecostals. I mean, the Unitarians kind of deny the scriptures all over, but Jesus-only Pentecostals, I mean, come on. It's all over the scripture that Jesus is God. He is every bit as much as God as God the Father is God. Well, since I'm talking about Trinitarianism, let's notice here how Paul mentions the Trinity in verses 1 through 4. First of all, in verse 1, he said that Paul mentions the gospel of God. He says, Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, called an apostle and singled out for God's good news. The good news of God. So in verse 1, he mentions God the Father. And then in verse 4, he talks about the good news about the Son of God. That's the verse we're on now. Jesus has been declared to be the powerful Son of God by the resurrection. So there's the Son, Jesus the Son. So verse 1 is God the Father. Verse 2, verse 4 is God the Son. And how was Jesus the Son declared to be the powerful Son of God by the resurrection? According to the Spirit of Holiness, according to the Holy Spirit. There's the Holy Spirit. God the Father, verse 1. God the Son, verse 4. God the Holy Spirit, in verse 4. The Trinity. When we say that the Spirit of holiness is holy, the Holy Spirit, what does holy mean? We, we tend to not think about that word too much when we mention the Holy Spirit, but holy means, very simple definition actually, it means separated from the world and consecrated to God. And consecrated means dedicated, so let's even make it simpler. Holy means separated from the world and dedicated to God. Now, let me, I'm going to quote one more verse from Acts to illustrate Romans 1, 4. It says, Jesus has been declared to be the powerful Son of God by the resurrection from the dead. Declared to be the powerful God, Son of God by the resurrection from the dead. What does Luke say in Acts 13, verse 33? Luke confirms, actually, that Jesus' resurrection was in, and indeed, indeed a confirmation of the gospel, a declaration that Jesus was the Son of God. We read in Acts 13:33, God has fulfilled this, fulfilled what? The good news, the gospel promised to the fathers, the Jewish fathers. God has fulfilled this for us, their children, for the Jewish children of the fathers. How? By raising up Jesus, the resurrection, as it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have become your father. Here in Acts 13:33, Luke collects directly the resurrection of Jesus with the declaration in the second psalm that you, Jesus, are my son. Today I've become your father. And so there we have resurrection of Jesus connected with the declaration by the father that Jesus is the father's son. By the way, all this talk of resurrection that Paul mentions here, this indicates that the resurrection of Jesus should be a central focus of the gospel, in my humble opinion. I don't have the verses in front of me, but I've just finished going through the book of Acts, and I noticed as I went through that almost every time that Paul presented the gospel somewhere, the resurrection was mentioned. Also, Peter uh, and James, uh, Peter and John, when they were witnessing in the first part of the book of Acts in Jerusalem, in the temple precincts there, they mentioned the resurrection. It's, and then I started thinking to myself, well, how often do I mention the resurrection when I witness to people? And the answer, it, sadly, is not very often, if at all. So I've changed my mind on that just by looking at the gospel and seeing how it was done. The resurrection is key. You don't have the resurrection. We of all men are most miserable. We're not saved. We don't have salvation. We don't have forgiveness of sins. We don't have anything if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. 
So this is so key to the gospel witness. We go now to verse 5, Romans 1. By whom, that's Jesus, by Jesus we have received grace and apostleship. Actually, that's not Jesus. That's by the Spirit of holiness. Verse 4 says, Who has been declared to be the powerful Son of God by the resurrection of the dead according to the Spirit of holiness? Verse 5 by whom we have received grace and apostleship. So it's through the Holy Spirit that Paul, he's using the editorial we there, by the Holy Spirit, Paul has received grace and apostleship. Now, of course, grace is unmerited favors, that which we don't deserve, but which is given to us as a gift. Now, there's a question here, is that grace just grace in general, the same type of grace that all Christians receive when they get saved? Or is he referring to the grace, the special gift that he needs in order to be an apostle? It's not clear, but it could be. It could go either way. I tend to think it's, he's talking about the grace he received to be an apostle. Adam Clark it goes out on a limb and said, "Yes, that's definitely what it is." But at any rate, however, whether Paul is received is speaking here of the grace he has received for salvation or the grace he's received for service, doesn't matter. It was by grace, not through any work he did. As I mentioned, he was a murderer. He was a persecutor. That's the kind of works he did in order to get saved. So his salvation was by grace alone by whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. Now, obedience to the faith, that's the KGV translation I'm using here, King James. Faith is used in the objective sense for obedience to the faith in the sense that faith is a system of doctrine, a system of beliefs, obedience to the Christian faith. However, the Holman Christian Study Bible, as well as the NIV, make that faith subjective, so it would be translated like this. We have received, this is in verse 5 of Romans 1. We have received grace and apostleship through him to bring about the obedience of faith among all the nations on behalf of his name. And that means the obedience which comes by faith. The obedience of faith which subjectively, to bring about the obedience which results from the subjective belief that I have in my heart. The NIV is even clearer than that. They say the obedience that comes from faith. Paul has received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience that comes from faith. Well, what can we say here? I believe that the subjective meaning is probably what Paul meant, and he's saying that if you want to obey God, you've got to believe him first. You're not going to obey God without belief. You think you can obey God by keeping a law? I'm going to do it. I'm going to, I'm going to screw up my holiness, and I'm going to self-righteously, through my own righteousness, keep the law. Dream on. You've got to obey first the obedience which brings about faith. And Paul has received grace and apostleship to, to bring that to, to, to whom? Among all nations, not just the Roman Empire. Well, I should say not just the Jews. He might have been referring to all nations within the Roman Empire. For his name, notice for his name, Paul talks about witnessing here, not for the benefit of the person being witnessed to, which of course is absolutely true, but Paul said there's something deeper than that. It's for Jesus that we witness. We want to see his name established, his glory established, his righteousness established before the world. Now, this all nations is actually revolutionary. Now, remember, of course, Paul is the gospel is the, a gospel to the Gentiles. So when he says all nations, he means Gentiles as well as Jews. Before Jesus came, there was only one nation that had a relationship with God. That was Israel. But Paul is now an apostle to the Gentiles, as he has said over and over again. There's some other scriptures that say that talk about how the Gentiles are now the object of God's grace and mercy. Acts 15:14. Simeon. This is back in. This is at the Jerusalem Council, and Simeon told about how Cornelius's house had gotten filled with the Holy Spirit, 
in Acts chapter 10, and Cornelius was a house, he had a house full of Gentiles, not Jews. Simeon has reported how God, Simeon is Simon, Simon Peter, Simeon has reported how God first intervened to take from the Gentiles a people for his name. That was the first big event there when the Gentiles got saved there in Cornelius' house. Titus 2.11, for the grace of God has appeared with salvation for all people. All people, not just the Jews, but all people. Titus 2.11. We go to Romans 1, verses 6 through 7. Again, I'm in the middle of a sentence, so let me read verse 5 again. By whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. Verse 6, including yourselves who also belong to Jesus Christ by calling. In other words, the gospel's gone out by grace to everybody all over the world, including you Romans, who also belong to Jesus Christ. How? By calling. So Paul is saying, hey, I was called to be an apostle in verse 1. He said, I'm a slave of Jesus Christ called as an apostle. And now he's saying, you too, Romans, are called. Hey, nobody comes to Jesus on their own. they got to be called first because we are sunk in our sin and our rebellion against God. Now, we're... Paul then says in verse 7, to all who are in Rome, now that can't mean everybody in Rome, obviously, because that would include people like Nero. <laughs> so it's all who are, the all is conditioned by this, all those who are loved by God and called as saints. He's writing to the saints. He's not writing to everybody in Rome. And this once again shows that you cannot make all always mean all, as I have heard so ignorantly stated so many times. There's a million different theological controversies that have arisen because people take the word all and say it means each and every one without exception. Sometimes it means all without distinction. Sometimes it just means very many. Look it up in a Greek lexicon. This is very easy to see. Now, when he says to all who in Rome love by God called as saints, that love by God sounds like there's some in Rome who are not loved by God. Now, it doesn't actually say that, and I realize that's an extreme interpretation. Because, after all, God loves people who aren't Christians. But then, of course, that brings up the great theological problem. If he loves all who are not Christians, why does he allow them to follow their own instincts into hell? Because they don't want to follow God. Well, that's the, that's the old theological problem of election and Arminianism and Augustinianism and all that. We're not going to get into that. But Paul he calls the those in Rome loved by God called as what? As Sinners saved by the grace of God? Called as sinners? No, called as saints. Do you know many times? I don't have the number in front of me, but if you will go through the scriptures and find out how many times Christians are called saints, even in Corinth, those bad old Corinthians, they're called saints. The word saints is used to Christians all the time. We are not called sinners. Now, I know there are some passages in which, for example, Paul says, I, Paul, I'm a, a sinner of whom I am the chief of all. See there that Paul says he's a sinner? No, that's you can explain that verse to see what Paul really meant there. I'm not going to get into that. That's a whole different subject. But Christians are called saints over and over and over again. They're not called sinners. And if people look at Christians look at themselves as sinners, they're going to do what comes naturally. They're going to sin. Your actions flow from your nature. If you are by nature a saint, then holy actions will flow from your holy nature. But if you focus on your flesh and say, this is who I really am, the fleshly parts of me, the sinful parts, the sinful things that I think or do, and that's my nature, that's who I really am, then, hey, you're going to go out and you're going to sin. The difference is, is a saint lapses into sin and loathes it. A sinner leaps into sin and loves it. That's courtesy of Adrian Rogers, former he's a former uh, famous Baptist preacher that said that, and I think that's a very good formula. 
Now, he calls us as saints or holy ones. Now, that means both positionally and experimentally, as the NIV Study Bible means. Well, what does that mean, positionally? That means when you are saved, you are automatically holy. Without holiness, is it impossible to see God? I think the verse in Hebrews that says that, without holiness, it's impossible to see God. Well, that means if you're saved, you're going to see God. Therefore, you've got to have some kind of holiness. That's what the NIV Study Bible calls positional holiness, because you're holy in the eyes of God. And experimentally, that means as you walk your life out in this world, you're also holy. You maybe not be as holy as you will be 10 years from now, but you're still holy. And the metaphor I love to use is a picture of the stock market. It goes up, it goes down, it goes up, it goes down, but you always see an upward trend line. The ups and the downs together rise higher and higher. And it's likewise with your sanctification. You might fall back here and there, and you might it might not be a smooth path to your glorification as you get more and more holified, but the up, but the trend is upward. You grow and grow and grow in holiness. All right, let's go back to that word called. You Romans were belong to Jesus Christ by calling. Some people have said that that means calling to an office in the church. Well, for one thing, there is no such thing as an office in the church. If you look in the King James, the word office is in italics. They're gifts, but they're no offices. But that's is obviously referring to the internal call of the believer to believe. Now, the Reformed theologians love to make the distinction between the effectual call and the inward call. Or the, excuse me, the outward call and the inward call. The outward call is the, the gospel that goes out to all the world, including non-believers. And this inward call, the effectual call, the inward call is the call of Jesus, uh, which calls you into his kingdom. I don't have any problem with that, actually. I think that's that's true. Now, in this verse also, we see that the Romans are loved by God. Verse 7, to all who are in Rome, loved by God. It's often easy to forget that God loves us. You say, well, that's obvious. Everybody knows that. Yeah, but do you really feel it all the time when you screw up or when things aren't going good? Here's another scripture that shows that we are loved by God. Colossians 3.12, therefore God's chosen ones, holy and loved, put on heartfelt compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. God's chosen ones, holy and loved. Colossians 3.12. Another verse I just thought of, uh, where is it in 1 John? It says we are accepted in the beloved. Well, that means we love him and we're accepted. This verse is, is more direct. We are holy and loved. And Paul tells us in verse 7, Romans 1, we are the Romans were loved. And he also says that the Romans were at peace with God. He says, grace to you and peace. Well, he didn't say they are at peace, but he says, I wish that you would have peace from God our Father. Now, that's sort of a formulaic expression, grace to you and peace. But what does it really mean if you think about peace in the theological sense? It means we were formerly enemies with God, as Paul says in Romans somewhere. We'll get to it shortly. I can't remember the verse. We're enemies with God, but now we're at peace with him, which means we're no longer enemies at God. We're no longer at war with him. We have peace. Verse 8, Romans 1. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because the news of your faith is being reported in all the world. The world there means the Roman Empire, of course. And the news had gotten out while Rome was a big, was the capital of the world. And although first century Romans were aware of India and Northern Europe, that the India and Northern Europe didn't matter to Rome. It was the Roman Empire that mattered. And people came into the Roman Empire all the time and they left and the word had gotten out. Who are these people that believe in Jesus? When Paul, a few years later, this is about AD 57, he's writing his letter, he wrote, arrives in Rome about AD 60, two or three years later, when he finally gets there, there are Christians there waiting to meet him at the, on the Appian Way, uh, excuse me, the Appian Forum and the Three Taverns, those two little towns on the road from Puteoli up to Rome. They were Christians that met him. 
So the word had gotten out all through the Roman Empire. The NIV Study Bible makes a point here that we should not only pray to God in Jesus' name and ask in Jesus' name, we should also thank God in Jesus' name. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God. I think Paul told the Philippians, well, Paul says here in Romans 1.8, I thank my God through Jesus Christ, which is the same thing as saying I thank my God in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, the fact that the news of the Romans' faith was being reported in all the world, this reflects Paul's value system. He likes the idea of the gospel being spread. And, of course, that was high on Paul's mind. That was, he, was, he was a missionary. He was an apostle. He wanted people to get saved. He went around starting churches. That drove him. That was his life's goal. He got excited about that. He praised God for that. I thank my God that all of you, for all of you because the news of your faith is being reported in all the world. My friend Steve Ackerson has what he calls a heart test. Does this type of news excite you as much as it did Paul? If not, then why not? I'm telling you, if the angels in heaven rejoice when somebody comes to Jesus, maybe we ought to rejoice down here too and get really excited about it. Nothing more excited than people getting saved. We go now to Romans 1 verses 9 through 10. For God, Paul continues, whom I serve with my spirit in telling the good news about his son, is my witness that I constantly mention you, always asking in my prayers that if it is somehow in God's will, I may now at least succeed in coming to you. Jesus is Paul's witness that Paul constantly mentions the Romans in his prayers. That's what he means. He's always asking in his prayers and mentioning the Romans. That if somehow in God's will, now notice that somehow, you know, it's sometimes it's hard to pray exactly because we don't know what God's will is and Paul didn't Paul said, was saying, you know, God, he was saying somehow, he was saying, send me to the Romans, but he didn't know how it was going to happen. So he said, somehow, however, however you want to do it, God, if it's, if it's, and he also subjected his desire to God's will. He says, if it is somehow in God's will, and I'm keen to this because early in the early charismatic movement, I remember people always saying, oh, you don't ever pray in God's will to get healed. Well, I, I don't know. I guess that's true. You never pray. I mean, if you're praying for somebody's salvation, nobody ever prays this way, but isn't it true that if he's not in the elect, he's not going to get saved? So if I say, I pray for John Doe to get saved, what you're really saying is, if it's in your will, I pray that John Doe gets saved. We don't ever say that. But Paul here explicitly says, hey, I want to come to Rome, but I don't know if it's God's will. And so he leaves it up to God to decide if he's going to go to Rome and to somehow how he's going to get to Rome. And that's something we ought to remember. We need to remember, we pray for something. Should we get this prayer answered in the affirmative? That's the first question. And the second question, if the answer is yes, God wants us to do it, then maybe we better leave it up to him how he's going to do it. For example, in healing, you're going to say, oh, I don't want to get healed by the doctor. I only want to get healed by the Holy Spirit. Or, or vice versa, I only, want to get, I only want to get healed by the doctor. I don't want to get healed by the Holy Spirit. Either way, maybe we just ought to pray that God heal us and let God figure out how he's going to do it. Maybe it's some weird Chinese herb or acupuncture. Maybe it's something outside the box. Maybe it's CBD, an extract from marijuana that the FDA has not approved yet. Maybe it's just by ordinary medicine in the hospital. Maybe the doctors can't do a thing about it, but maybe God needs to miraculously, supernaturally heal you because there ain't no other answer. Maybe it's God's will for your time on earth to come to an end and you to go to heaven. I, I know there's a lot of charismatics that won't like that, but I'm telling you, if you're a charismatic, you need to examine this scripture. If somehow in God's will, I may at last succeed in coming to you. That is not showing lack of faith and lack of, of belief 
in God when Paul prayed that way. Notice that in verse 1, Paul referred to the gospel as God's gospel, God's good news. And here in verse 9, he says the good news about his son. So it's the son's good news. And since we're talking about, Paul is talking about God's, the father's good news and the son's good news, that means God the father and God the son are equal. They're divine. When I say equal, I mean they're equal in their divinity. They're not equal in their person. This shows that Jesus is God. Another anti-Jehovah's Witness verse. Now notice that Paul says that God, Jesus is his witness that he's praying for the Romans all the time. Praying that he come to the Romans all the time. Now that's a pretty strong statement. He's calling Jesus to witness that he's been praying for them. John Gill says it's so strong a statement that it's really an oath. John Gill says that he uses an oath because he doesn't know the Romans. He wants them to really believe. I've really been praying to come see you. So he wants to make his statement stronger than usual. I don't know if it's an oath or not, but it, it is a strong statement saying, God, Jesus is my witness. He's divine. He watches me pray, and he hears me praying that I want to come see you. Now, he, Paul mentions in verse 9, for God whom I serve with my spirit. How do you serve God with your spirit? Well, that means as opposed to going through the motions bodily, wholeheartedly, in other words, not just going through the motions. Quote from Adam Clark. I not only employ all the powers of my body in this service, but all those of my soul. In other words, with his whole heart, soul, and spirit, he serves God. Now, Paul was praying somehow in God's will he may at last succeed. Did he at last succeed in coming to the Romans? Yes, he did. This is about 57 AD. He shows up about three years later after having been arrested, twice almost assassinated, arrested, held in, in Rome, sent to Caesarea, held for two years in prison in Caesarea, sent from Caesarea to Rome as a prisoner, and his ship gets shipwrecked. So I'm sure he wasn't praying. That's the way he was going to get to Rome. We've got to leave it up to God's providence how God's going to get you to Rome. I mean, he was swimming in, the, in a bay in Malta. That was part of his trip with no ship. So he got bit by a snake, too. Lots of stuff happened on the way to Rome. So you think things are hard and tough. Give God some time. He'll work it out, whatever his will is for you to do. Now, in verse 10, Paul says that he is always asking in his prayers that he could succeed in coming to the Rome. Always asking. This idea of ask, 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 knock, knock, knock. Well, Jesus taught that, did he not? The parables of the importunate widow. Excuse me. Yes, the importunate widow, the widow who kept asking the judge for her judgment. The friend who knocked on the door, knock, 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 in the middle of the night, I need some food, I need some food, get up, get up, get up. You know, if you ask your father for an egg, will he give you a stone? All those prayer parables that Jesus taught are reflected also in the letters post-gospel. For example, in Ephesians 1, 15 through 16, Paul says this, this is why since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I never stop giving thanks for you as I remember you in my prayers. I never stop giving thanks for you, Ephesians. Philippians 1, 3 through 4, I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you, always praying with joy for all of you in my every prayer. Always. That doesn't mean 24 hours a day. That means on a regular basis, successively, as a routine, as a custom, as a habit. Colossians 1, 3 through 4, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Always thank God. First Thessalonians 1, 2, we always thank God for all of you, remembering you constantly in our prayers. It's kind of fun to put those verses together. They're usually at the beginning of the letters, near the in the in the uh, salutation, and Paul tells all the churches that he started and loves. He's always praying for them, folks. Don't ever stop. 
Now he's mentioning this fact that he was not able to come to see the Romans. He said, I'm praying that somehow in God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. He mentions this in a couple of verses of verse 13. Now I want you to know, brothers, that I often planned to come to you but was prevented until now. How he's prevented, we don't know. In order that I might have a fruitful ministry among you just as among the rest of the Gentiles. And he says at the end of the book in Romans 15:22, that is why I have been prevented many times from coming to you. So again, he's prevented. Don't know exactly how, but I'm sure it was providential. In Acts 19:21, when Paul is, where is he now? In Acts 19, he's in Ephesus, I think, and he's planning to go through Macedonia and Achaia and then go back to Jerusalem with the Jerusalem poor offering. He says, after I've been there, in Acts 19.21, after I've been where? In Jerusalem, I must see Rome. So his idea was, he's going to go back, give the money to the saints in Jerusalem, and then he's going to come back and see Rome. So this idea of wanting to see Rome is right on the top of his head. God agrees with that, because in Acts 23.11, this is Paul before the Jerusalem mob. He's saved from the mob by Claudius Lysias, the Roman commander, and he's spending the night in the fortress of Antonia there, near the temple complex acts 23 11, the following night the lord stood by him and said have courage for as you have testified about me in jerusalem so you must also testify in rome so god's working out this plan he's going to get him to rome paul wanted to go to rome and then now he's got a, a, a testimony a confirmation of that desire with a vision from jesus i'm going to send you to rome when paul finally got to rome he's on the last leg of his journey going through the form of appius and the three taverns and then when Paul saw the Christians from Rome who had come down south to meet him there on that road, he thanked God. That's a little bit understated. I bet he was really happy to see the Romans after all all the desire he had to see them and all the hindrances from seeing them. Rome was the large capital of the, of the whole world, and it took Paul nearly a quarter of a century between his conversion until the time he got to Rome. He got saved around 37 Three years in Damascus and the Arabian Desert, that's 40, and this is now 60 or so, so that's what, 20, 23 years, almost about 23, 24, maybe 25. The years are, the, the dates are a little bit fuzzy, but about a quarter of a century before he finally set foot in Rome. That must have been exciting for him to finally get there. Moving on now to Romans 1, 11, and 12. For I want very much to see you, so I may import, impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, to be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Now, this idea of mutual encouragement, folks, this is, well, 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Corinthians 14, all about the gifts building up the body. This is an important idea in the Christian faith, and that's why these Christians who think they don't need to go to church, and I know how hard it is to find a church, Lord have mercy do I know, but we're supposed to go to be mutually encouraged by each other. And if you think you can be a lone ranger Christian and read your Bible by yourself and pray by yourself and not be warped in your spiritual growth, then you don't know how to read the Bible, and you don't have any sense. So to be mutually encouraged by one another, by each other's faith, he's talking about, he's, he's actually, he's not talking about the Romans mutually encouraging each other, which is, he's, he's talking about his faith encouraging them and the, and the Romans' faith encouraging him. Now, there is nothing more encouraging to find out that Christians are doing well in the Lord. I know couple couple of converts well one's a convert of mine and one's somebody that was saved elsewhere but that i'm doing bible studies with chinese people and they're doing great and when you hear that and there's another indian woman too doing great and it's encouraging 
It's just absolutely encouraging to hear that they're doing great. So I can speak from personal experience. I'm sure you can too, is that we need to encourage one another, both the people to whom we give spiritual gifts to and the person who gives a spiritual gift needs to be encouraged by the receiver of the spiritual gift. Now, what spiritual gift is he talking about? Well, in the same book of Romans 12, 6 through 8, we see this. According to the grace given to us, we have different gifts. If prophecy, use it according to the standard of one's faith. If service, in service. If teaching, in teaching. If exhorting, in exhortation. Giving with generosity. Leading with diligence. Showing mercy with cheerfulness. All kinds of gifts. And I do not believe we need to make rigid categories. I mean, let's face it, some people give and exhort and lead all at the same time. Some of these gifts are, are charismatic and uh, uh, supernatural, like prophecy. Others are not, like teaching. Some people can use three or four gifts. Some people use five or six. Some people have one or two. It doesn't matter. Just whatever God gives you to do, do it. And, of course, he mentions a lot about spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. Those are mostly charismatic gifts, not all. Paul doesn't make a big distinction between the two. He mixes them all together here in Romans 12, 6 and 8, and 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. Paul was a genuinely humble person, the NIV study Bible says. He wanted to be ministered to as well as he wanted to minister. He wanted to be encouraged by their faith, the Romans' faith. Now, Adam Clark says that this imparting of a spiritual gift is an imparting of a charismatic or miraculous gift that only an apostle could impart. I don't agree with that. Why can't ordinary Christians do miracles? Why can't, why can't an ordinary Christian impart a, a, a spiritual gift of miracles to the Romans? It, 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 Clark makes it, it almost sounds Catholic. You know, you're an apostle, you're a special person, and therefore you have the power to give a gift to somebody else. I don't believe that's true. I believe you might teach somebody how to exercise a gift, like in prophecy or tongues and interpretation, or teach somebody how to teach, or teach somebody how to witness. But I don't think it's some kind of supernatural do, 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 do. I'm an apostle, I'm going to give you a gift, poof, and there it is. I don't believe that. I believe when Paul says he's going to impart some spiritual gift, yeah, that could be a miraculous gift, but it also could be a natural gift too, teaching or something like that. Verse 13 of Romans 1, Now I want you to know, brothers, Paul continues to speak to the Romans, that I often planned to come to you, but was prevented until now in order that I might have a fruitful ministry among you, just as among the rest of the Gentiles. Now you notice he says the rest of the Gentiles, which implies that the Roman church is predominantly Gentile, as we said earlier. Paul calls them brothers, even though he doesn't know them yet. He's very affectionate for them. He says, I was prevented to come till now. That's probably referring to the fact that he had to take that four-province collection, the poor relief offering, back to Jerusalem, which interrupted his, his desire to go to the Romans. Now, of course, after he wrote this letter to the Romans, he was also prevented by getting arrested in Jerusalem spending two years in jail at Caesarea, and they're getting shipwrecked on the way to Rome from Caesarea. But that hasn't happened yet, so he doesn't even know about how what more is going to try to prevent him from coming to Rome. You get the idea that this was a big deal for Paul to get to Rome, because when you go through a lot of stuff, you can say that all hell is against you, everybody's against you, but by golly, when you break through, it was really God's will. That's kind of what it seems like was happening to Paul here on his way to Rome. Verse 14 of Romans 1, I, Paul, am obligated both to Greeks and barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. How is he obligated? In debt to. Paul is acting like all these unsaved Greeks and barbarians out here. He owes them something. He owes them a chance to hear the gospel. Both to the wise, that means the philosophers and the foolish, those who are not philosophers. In other words, he's just coming up with common categories that were used back then. He says, I'm obligated to everybody. I've got to preach the gospel, not just to Jews, 
By the way, when it says Greeks and barbarians, that word barbarian is misleading because the Greeks use the term in a neutral sense. We, of course, use the term in a pejorative sense. The barbarians were people who didn't speak the Greek language because their language sounded like bar, 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 bar to the Greeks, and so they called them barbarians. Now, this obligation that Paul had to the wise of the foolish, the Greeks and the barbarians, I think what he's saying is a little parallelism here. The wise of the Greeks, because they're so famous for philosophy, and the barbarians are those whom the Greeks considered to be foolish because they didn't have the culture and the philosophy, the civilization, the tragedy, and the tra- the tragic plays and the comic plays and all that stuff that the Greeks had. So Paul is saying, I'll minister to cultured Greeks and I'll minister to uncultured non-Greeks. Now notice this obligation. I am obligated to the world. Compare that to John Paul Sartre's The Existentialist Philosophy, philosopher, who came up with this phrase, profound indifference. Now, well aware of that phrase because my father, who was an atheist, had it engraved in copper and put over his kitchen sink or in his kitchen. Profound indifference. In fact, he named his boat Profound Indifference. In other words, he didn't give a ding-dong golly darn about anybody in the world but himself or his own family. Now, that is profound indifference, and that is totally opposite of Paul's attitude here because Paul's attitude was, I want everybody to hear the gospel. Now, of course, he knows not everybody's not going to get saved, but he knows that he wants to get to give them the opportunity to hear the gospel. He was a dedicated apostle, folks. He was a dedicated missionary. Verse 15 of Romans 1, and we'll shut this audio down. So I am eager to preach the good news to you also in Rome. Just like he wants to preach all over the, ro- all over the world, he wants to preach the good news to you also who are in Rome. And to you, he's referring to brothers. So I think here the preaching is not evangelism, it's rather teaching. He's not giving sermons to people already converted. He's talking about teaching, really. And he wants to do it in Rome. Now, he could be referring to, I want to preach the good news to all of you Romans who are in Rome, and that would include non-Christian Romans, so he's talking about evangelism. So I need to be careful about that. It's not really clear. Rome, after all, was the metropolis of the Roman Empire, a very public place, the very seat of Satan, the very seat of Satan, where was the heat of persecution. Paul's eager to get in there and get the job done so i suspect I, I let me take it back he was talking about preaching the good news to you romans who are in rome even though he's right to roman christians Summar, let's summarize some application from verses 8 through 15 verse 8 we should be thankful to god when other people come to faith remember oh i thank my god the good news of you is going all out through the world we should encourage and be encouraged in the faith I want to be mutually encouraged by you as I impart a spiritual gift to you, Paul says in verse 12. We should be eager to evangelize our world, just like here in verses 14. I am obligated to the world, to the Greeks and barbarians, Paul said. Applications are pretty obvious, are they not? We are now finished with Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 15. We will take up salvation. As Paul talks about it, starting in verse 16 in Romans 1. We'll do that next audio. I hope you enjoyed this one.